Chapter 15 of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Riley McGuire. A Son at the Front by Edith Warden. Chapter 15. A week or two later, coming home late from a long day's work at the office, Campton saw Madame Lebel awaiting him. He always stopped for a word now, fearing each time that there was bad news of Jules Lebel, but not wishing to seem to avoid her. Today, however, Madame Lebel, though mysterious, was not anxious. Monsieur will find the studio open. There's a lady. She insisted on going up. A lady? Why did you let her in? What kind of a lady? A lady... Well, a lady with such magnificent furs that one couldn't keep her out in the cold, Madame Lebel answered with simplicity. Campton went up apprehensively. The idea of unknown persons in possession of his studio always made him nervous. Whoever they were, whatever errands they came on, they always, especially women, disturbed the tranquil course of things, faced him with unexpected problems, unsettled him in one way or another. Bouncing in on people suddenly was like dynamiting fish. It left him with his mind full of fragments of dismembered thoughts. As he entered, he perceived from the temperate atmosphere that Madame Lebel had not only opened the studio, but made up the fire. The lady's furs must indeed be magnificent. She sat at the farther end of the room, in a high-backed chair near the stove, and when she rose, he recognized his former wife. The long, sable cloak, which had slipped back over the chair, justified Madame Lebel's description, but the dress beneath it appeared to Campton simpler than Mrs. Brant's habitual raiment. The lamplight, striking up into her powdered face, puffed out her underlids and made harsh hollows in her cheeks. She looked frightened, ill, and yet determined. John, she began, laying her hand on his sleeve. It was the first time she had ever set foot in his shabby quarters, and in his astonishment he could only stammer out, Julia. But as he looked at her, he saw that her face was wet with tears. Not bad news, he broke out. She shook her head, and drawing a handkerchief from a diamond monogrammed bag, wiped away the tears and the powder. Then she pressed the handkerchief to her lips, gazing at him with eyes as helpless as a child's. Sit down, said Campton. As they faced each other across the long table, with papers and paint rags and writing materials pushed aside to make room for the threadbare napkin on which his plate and glass and bottle of vin ordinaire were set out, he wondered if the scene woke in her any memory of their first days of gaiety and poverty or if she merely pitied him for still living in such squalor. And suddenly it occurred to him that when the war was over and George came back, it would be pleasant to hunt out a little apartment in an old house in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, put some good furniture in it, and oppose the discreeter charm of such an interior to the heavy splendors of the Avenue Marignier. How could he expect to hold a luxury-loving youth if he only had this dingy studio to receive him in. Mrs. Brandt began to speak. 
I came here to see you because I didn't wish anyone to know. Not Adele, nor even Anderson. Leaning toward him, she went on in short, breathless sentences. I've just left Madge Tockett. You know her, I think? She's at Madame de Dolmetsch's hospital. Something dreadful has happened. Too dreadful. It seems that Madame de Dolmetsch was very much in love with Ladislas Isidore, a writer, wasn't he? I don't know his books, but Madge tells me they're wonderful. And of course, men like that ought not to be sent to the front. Men like what? Geniuses, said Mrs. Brandt. He was dreadfully delicate, besides, and was doing admirable work on some military commission in Paris. I believe he knew any number of languages. And poor Madame de Dolmetsch, you know I've never approved of her. But things are so changed nowadays, and at any rate, she was madly attached to him, and had done everything to keep him in Paris, medical certificates, people at headquarters working for her, and all the rest. But it seems that there are no end of officers always intriguing to get staff jobs, strong, able-bodied young men who ought to be in the trenches, and are fit for nothing else, but who are jealous of the others. And last week, in spite of all she could do, poor Isidore was ordered to the front. Campton made an impatient movement. It was even more distasteful for him to be appealed to by Mrs. Brandt in Isidore's name than by Madame de Dolmetsch in George's. His gorge rose at the thought that people should associate in their minds cases as different as those of his son and Madame de Dolmetsch's lover. I'm sorry, he said, but if you've come to ask me to do something more about George, take any new steps, it's no use. I can't do the sort of thing to keep my son safe that Madame de Dolmetsch would do for her lover. Mrs. Brant stared. Safe? He was killed the day after he got to the front. Good Lord, Isidore? Ladislas Isidore, killed at the front. The words remained unmeaning. By no effort could Campton relate them to the fat, middle-aged philanderer with his Jewish eyes, his Slav eloquence, his Levantine gift for getting on and for getting out from under. Campton tried to picture the clever, contriving devil drawn in his turn into that merciless red eddy and gulped down the monster's throat with the rest. What a mad world it was, in which the same horrible and magnificent doom awaited the coward and the hero. Poor Madame de Dolmetsch, he muttered remembering with a sense of remorse her desperate appeal and his curt rebuff. Once again the poor creature's love had enlightened her, and she had foreseen what no one else in the world would have believed, that her lover was to die like a hero. Isidore was nearly forty and had a weak heart, and she'd left nothing, literally nothing, undone to save him. Campton read in his wife's eyes what was coming. It's impossible now that George should not be taken, Mrs. Brandt went on. The same thought had tightened Campton's own heartstrings, but he had hoped she would not say it. It may be George's turn any day, she insisted. They sat and looked at each other without speaking. Then she began again, imploringly. I tell you, there's not a moment to be lost. Campton picked up a palette knife and began absently to rub it with an oily rag. Mrs. Brandt's anguished voice still sounded on. Unless something is done immediately, it appears there's a regular hunt for embusques, as they're called. As if it was everybody's business to be killed. 
How is the staff work to be carried on if they're all taken? But it's certain that if we don't act at once, act energetically. He fixed his eyes on hers. Why do you come to me? He asked. Her lids opened wide. But he's our child. Your husband knows more people. He has ways. You've often told me. She reddened faintly and seemed about to speak. But the reply died on her lips. Why did you say, Campton pursued, that you had come here because you wanted to see me without Brant's knowing it? She lowered her eyes and fixed them on the knife he was still automatically rubbing. Because Anderson thinks. Anderson won't. He says he's done all he can. Ah, cried Campton, drawing a deep breath. He threw back his shoulders as if to shake off a weight. I... Feel exactly as Brant does, he declared. You, you feel as he does, you, George's father. But a father has never done all he can for his son. There's always something more that he can do. The words, breaking from her in a cry, seemed suddenly to change her from an aging doll into a living and agonized woman. Campton had never before felt as near to her, as moved to the depths by her. For the length of a heartbeat, he saw her again with a red-haired baby in her arms, the light of morning on her face. My dear, I'm sorry. He laid his hand on hers. Sorry, sorry. I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to do something. I want you to save him. He faced her with bent head, gazing absently at their interwoven fingers. Each hand had forgotten to release the other. I can't do anything more, he repeated. She started up with a despairing exclamation. What's happened to you? Who has influenced you? What has changed you? How could he answer her? He hardly knew himself. Had hardly been conscious of the change till she suddenly flung it in his face. If blind animal passion be the profoundest as well as the fiercest form of attachment, his love for his boy was at that moment as nothing to hers. Yet his feeling for George, in spite of all the phrases he dressed it in, had formerly in its essence been no other. That his boy should survive, survive at any price, that had been all he cared for or sought to achieve. It had been convenient to justify himself by arguing that George was not bound to fight for France. But Campton now knew that he would have made the same effort to protect his son if the country engaged had been his own. In the careless pre-war world, as George himself had once said, it had seemed unbelievable that people should ever again go off and die in a ditch to oblige anybody. Even now the automatic obedience of the millions of the untaught and the unthinking, though it had its deep pathetic significance, did not move Campton like the clear-eyed sacrifice of the few who knew why they were dying. Jean Fortin, René Davril, and such lads as young Louis d'Astry, with his reasoned horror of butchery and waste in general, and his instant grasp of the necessity of this particular sacrifice, it was they who had first shed light on the dark problem. Campton had never before, at least consciously, thought of himself and the few beings he cared for as part of a greater whole, component elements of the immense, amazing spectacle but the last four months had shown him man as a defenseless animal, 
suddenly torn from his shell, stripped of all the interwoven tendrils of association, habit, background, daily ways and words, daily sights and sounds, and flung out the human habitable world into naked ether, where nothing breathes or lives. That was what war did. That was why those who best understood it in all its farthest reaching abomination willingly gave their lives to put an end to it. He heard Mrs. Brandt crying. Julia, he said. Julia, I wish you'd try to see... She dashed away her tears. See what? All I see is you, sitting here safe and saying you can do nothing to save him. But to have the right to say that? You ought to be in the trenches yourself. What do you suppose those young men out there think of their fathers, safe at home, who are too high-minded and conscientious to protect them? He looked at her compassionately. Yes, he said, that's the bitterest part of it. But for that, there would hardly be anything in the worst war for us old people to lie awake about. Mrs. Brandt had stood up and was feverishly pulling on her gloves. He saw that she no longer heard him. He helped her to draw her furs about her and stood waiting while she straightened her veil and tapped the waves of hair into place, her eyes blindly seeking for a mirror. There was nothing more that either could say. He lifted the lamp and went out of the door ahead of her. You needn't come down, she said in a sob. But leaning over the rail into the darkness, he answered, I'll give you a light. The concierge has forgotten the lamp on the stairs. He went ahead of her down the long, greasy flights, and as they reached the ground floor, he heard a noise of feet coming and going, and frightened voices exclaiming. In the doorway of the porter's lodge, Mrs. Brandt's splendid chauffeur stood looking on compassionately at a group of women gathered around Madame Lebel. The old woman sat in her den, her arms stretched across the table, her sewing fallen at her feet. On the table lay an open letter. The grocer's wife from the corner stood by, sobbing. Mrs. Brandt stopped, and Campton, sure now of what was coming, pushed his way through the neighbors about the door. Madame Lebel's eyes met his with the mute reproach of a tortured animal. Jules, she said, last Wednesday, through the heart. Campton took her old, withered hand. The women ceased sobbing and a hush fell upon the stifling little room. When Campton looked up again, he saw Julia Brandt, pale and bewildered, hurrying toward her motor in the vault of the pot cochere sent back the chauffeur's answer to her startled question. Poor old lady. Yes, her only son's been killed at the front. End of chapter 15 Recording by Riley McGuire